welcome adventurer to the Level Up Board Game Podcast, a show that uses your experiences and opinions to discuss board games and the gaming community. Join the heroes as they conquer perils such as meeples, cards, and miniatures, all in an effort to level up. You're listening to the Level Up Board Game Podcast. Hey, welcome adventurers. It's the Level Up Board Game Podcast. This is Patrick. Hey, King Scott here, guys. And we are pleased to be in your ears today. <laughs> Woohoo! Scott, Scott, we're going to, okay, deal. We're going to hold off on all After Origins talk. How's that sound? Yes. We'll, we'll yes. save it for a side quest. Our or lips are sealed. Okay. Well, then there's also probably the restraining orders and things like that, too, we got to keep in mind. And the fact that this is being recorded before Origins. Shh. <laughs> oh, Adventures, thanks for having us in your ears today. Remember, join that BGG Guild, Guild 3722. We're shooting for a tournament in the back half of July. I think, Scott, you and I agree that we're going to try and do that with Seven Wonders Duel. And we're thinking like July 31st, a Sunday. If you want to join it, you got to get in. 3722, our guild on Board Game Geek. We're going to be putting up the posts there in July and try and coordinate, make that thing happen. We'll even give you some geek gold for the Wilford badge. Scott, I'm going to let you give a little bit of banter here, but first, I wanted to play a game with you. All right. We like games. I want to hear, yeah. your, ex- I want to hear your excitement level on a scale from 1 to 10. 1 being absolutely not, 10 being, holy crap, take my money now. I guess I'm All right, upcoming so games. I'm at a 5 right now. All right. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's start here. Twilight Imperium has a okay, roll and write. Okay, <laughs> Come on. Twilight Imperium is easily the greatest board game ever created. And you know what? You're wrong. You're just wrong. Okay, okay. It has a roll and write coming out called Twilight Inscription. Where yeah, okay. Scale one to ten. Okay, I'm back up to a five. Okay. In true Twilight Imperium fashion... You have multiple sheets, and it takes about an hour and a half to two hours to play this roll and write. To be honest, I've seen different things about this, and I've got to say, I'm actually probably about an eight. Really? I'm yes. shocked. That's awesome. That is something there I could get behind with with trying that out. I a do super like roll and writes. Right. Those are fun. <sighs> so that might get me in. Scott, have you tried Hadrian's Wall? No, I have not. Oh, that's a meaty roll and write. And I know you're a, you are a roller and a writer. You need to get yourself some Hadrian's Wall. It plays really well solo, and it is meaty. It's got, got some meat on them bones. <laughs> okay, number two. The King's Dilemma has a sequel, Queen's Dilemma. But of course. Right. <laughs> what do you think about that? Queen's Dilemma, scale of one to ten. Queen's Dilemma, I would have to say I, I like King's Dilemma. So I would I would still put that up around an eight there. I'm excited about that. Okay, okay. July 19th, the Moonraker's Big Box comes to Kickstarter. Oh, yeah, back from episode 45. I would say that's a, a solid 9, 9.5 for me. Ooh, that's way up there. Last one oh, I got. Oh, yeah, I, I love me some Moonraker's. Last one on the list, Terra Nova, a simplified, shortened version of Terra Mystica. It's coming out at the end of October, and pre-orders go up at the end of June. What do you think? Well, I tried Terra Mystica one time on BGA, and I was absolutely lost. So if there's a simplified <laughs> version of it, I'm all for it, because people seem to love that game, and I want to see what's going on. 
Well, this one, it's uh, apparently the same thing, but simplified. You still have your uh, choose from 10 different factions. This is from BGG, Scott. Choose 10 different factions, each with different abilities, spread out on the central map as skillfully as possible, achieve certain goals from round to round, in peaceful competition with other factions, erect buildings and settle new territories, use your faction's special abilities in clever ways to control the largest territory at the end, and win with the most points. And sounds like real Terra Mystica. <laughs> you were yeah, it does. Sword. Yeah, yeah. Tell you what, that one's coming from Capstone. They are killing it. Never mind Arc Nova being all the rage. We talked about Corrosion earlier this year, and I was like, yes, oh, that's Capstone yes. game. And we loved that one. We thought we had a lot of fun with that here. They got this Terra Nova coming out. I still have coffee traders yet to be learned. We were joking with Will about that back at, back at PAX, back in December. Oh, God, yes. And I was like, oh, it's on my table. I'm going to learn it. <laughs> <laughs> so I can't even say they're killing it because of that game, but it looks pretty and it, the theme is coffee. Uh, well, I mean, there's so many things going on. I mean, we have July 19th, uh, Moonrakers is coming out. No, no, yeah, but no. I, <laughs> I'm interrupting. Let me you. do my thing, Patrick. Do your thing. July 19th, Moonrakers is coming out, but a couple days earlier, you could join us at the vault in Greensburg. From 2 to 8, we're having yet another Level Up Board Game Podcast meetup. Now then, with my schedule coming up with Renaissance Festival, it's very hard to get time in to have these kind of things. So we're really looking forward to squeezing one in here until probably sometime in October. But this is going to be a good one, and we invite everyone to come out and join us at the vault in Greensburg, right behind Westmoreland Mall. Scott, we had a really good game of just one. The other day. Oh, God. We, you talked yes. about just one early in the podcast, and it's like, oh, I love that game. We need to get that one back to the table. Mike was over. Well, I had you, Jason. Jenny was here. Jimmy. Mm -hmm. uh, Jimmy made it over. That was the first time Jimmy had ever been in the house. Yeah. And Mike was here, and we're playing just one. I, I don't remember how it all okay. led up to it, but I remember the punchline. Okay. I think, I think the word was vodka. And everybody had to so. get me to guess vodka, right? So I'm looking around and, and Mike, of all things, puts down apple. <laughs> apple. I was like, okay, wait, apple vodka. I'm sure that's a thing, but like, you know, you think, okay, vanilla vodka. You can put down a, a vodka brand that, you know, there's, there's plenty of ways yeah. to make someone guess vodka. He went with apple. So this turned into a five minute joke about apple as the clue for vodka. Next card gets drawn. <laughs> well, first... wait, 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 wait. The next card was drawn by Mike. By Mike. <laughs> uh, and and it says, was potato. Uh, give me number five. And it was potato. <laughs> <laughs> and then, of course, in, in, in regular <laughs> just one fashion, everyone is in hysterics laughing. And the person who has the card in front of him is like, what? 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 I don't get it. What's going on? And then three of us wrote down Apple. <laughs> <laughs> I wrote down Apple thinking, well, that's going to flip up. They're going to be like, oh, God. <laughs> oh, that, yeah. That oh, game it still holds such a record for the most laughs. I mean, it really gets funny because just trying to think of a word that no one else is going to think of mm -hmm. and where your mind goes, it goes in some weird places sometimes. <laughs> 
Scott, I see your Doc Fighters Kickstarter by the time this airs will have come to a close on the 10th. So we're going to have to tell adventurers, look for that late pledge. You are Yes, they were successful thing. on their Kickstarter campaign. Congratulations, And could be happier Marcus. for those guys. Yes. So I've been busier than I don't know what you could say. So I'm going to let you start off with the games here, and then I'll pick up after that. I'll, I'll tell you what. We'll get the ball rolling. We'll do one together because this is one that okay. we had the – you know what? It, it's not that often that you and I get to play a game together that's not the feature review game because we get to meet from time to time. Right. It's always, okay, we got to get another play. Yep. Of we got to hurry up and get monsters. this in. We got to get this one in two more t- – you know, we're always trying to squeeze in that feature game. So typically, adventures, our recent plays are what we've been playing when we're not together. This one we did, and it's called By the Vote. Mm-hmm. This is a 2020 game from Koozie's Games. They actually, full disclosure, they reached out to us and they asked us to give this one a look, and we did. This one came in, Scott, and I said, uh, Scott, do you mind taking this one and learning this one? I got a lot on the schedule, so I passed it off to you, and I still remember your first impression. We were talking on the phone, and you were like, I don't know about this one, Pat. This, this isn't, yeah. I think this is going to be pretty dumb. Yeah, yeah, it, it really didn't impress me. There was just very little details that were in it to make it a fun game. Tom and I played it at SG one day, mm-hmm. and it just kind of fell flat. Oh, you guys played it, it before just, I did. Oh, Yeah, okay. yeah, so it was just kind of, uh, okay. Nothing special but for you. we did play it on that night that we played just one with Mike and Jimmy and Jenny and Jason and you, and we got everyone together. The whole idea behind By the Vote, no matter what side of the political spectrum you're on, money has to be used in order to advertise, to campaign, and all these other things to get votes. Well, what you're going to do is you have a number of rounds that you're going to be trying to buy votes of different states. So just in your regular CNN, Fox News, wherever news you're going to be watching, whenever you're having an election, you have that thing up on the top there showing you how many electoral votes you need to get. Mm-hmm. Well, you have cards for each and every state, and each and every state has the number of electoral votes on it. Whenever they come out, you have a moment where you have a little binder in front of you, a blinder. A screen. Yeah, a bl- yeah. blinder. There you go. A little player yeah, screen to hide. So it. that no one else can see how much money you're putting out there to try and win that state. Now, the state could be three electoral votes. It could be 27 electoral votes. Everyone else sees that, but they don't know how much money you're putting in to get that state. Mm-hmm. Once everyone does this, this game has to be played in 15 minutes. There is a timer. Oh, yeah. So we it is a quick game. There. Yes. <laughs> the- <laughs> so. Once everyone has their amounts of money in there, you lift your player screen, you see who put the most money in there, you take those states. Yeah, one at a well, time. Then- state number one, who got it? State number two, who got it? You know what was wild was even if you lose, if I bid four million and you bid five, we both lose our money. It's not like, oh, yes. you won, spend your money. No, because just like in real life, while I still campaign there, I still put four million, but it wasn't enough. Now, starting out, you only start out with $10 million. So you have to make that stretch over three rounds of the game. Mm -hmm. And then the second part opens up, and then you'll get some more money. And then it goes on, and then in the final, you'll get the more money then as well. Plus, you'll get money depending on how many states you have. Now, the special thing here is there are swing states. This you know, the all changer. the all the electoral educated people always look at these things and, well, 
Ohio's a swing state. Well, Pennsylvania's a swing state. It's going to come down to who can take Florida. Exactly. (laughs) Well, if you are the person that you take Florida or Pennsylvania, well, being a swing state, you get to steal a state from someone else. Their most recent one taken, right? Yeah, I can't just be like, well, you got California. I'm going to take your California. It's got to so be that's really awesome there the if yeah. someone gets that. But then it's normally they get North Dakota with like three. But so you, know, it's, you know what happens though, Scott, is there's a timing element. Like if the line of if the lineup of states, four round five, and there's five states down, and the one in the fifth spot is a swing state, the one in the fourth spot is California. Mm-hmm. You can't bid on California because if you win yeah. it, it doesn't matter. Whoever takes a swing state in slot five, they know that whoever won California, that's their most re- – I bring that's up California. For those around the world, not from the US, uh, the California is worth the most electoral votes at 55. Second place I think is like, what, New York at like 30 I think something like that, yes. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm your typical American but, voter. <laughs> needless to say, this game shines at more people playing Absolutely. It. It was so much more fun because you're keeping an eye on what everyone else is doing. And then finally, whenever it ends up, you end up with your president-elect and whoever comes in second is the vice president-elect. It's a fun little filler game. It's so much more fun than just like using it as a two-player game. If you can get it to the max number of players, which I don't have it in front of me. I'm not sure how many it is. Plays up to five. Three to five. If you can get five players, that is brilliant. Easy to learn, easy to play. Oh, heck, easy to learn. It's even got the QR code right on the front of the box. Scan here mm-hmm. to learn how to play. Uh, it plays in 15 minutes. You even have a timer to make sure that it plays in 15 minutes. That adds a little bit of tension. I don't know that it felt necessary, but that it's there was kind of kind of neat. It kind of felt like, oh, there's a little bit of a, we'll say, extra pressure. You know, it's a, some external force forcing you to not overthink your decisions. Oh, I think that was something definitely. We got to the, like, almost the last round. And we were like, I looked up and I'm like, we got two minutes left. And then everyone's like, oh, crap. Uh, Let's do something here. (laughs) So it really got crazy there. It's a fun little game. It's small. It's easy to teach. I still would say I wouldn't play it with your typical political triggered individuals, maybe in your family. (laughs) But uh, anyone else, perfectly fine. I, I agree. And, you know, a fi- final thought for me, you know, my first impression when I saw buy the vote, I thought, oh, no, it's a political game or it's going to be something that's – dude, I <laughs> – my <laughs> sister's sister's husband, okay? So, like, my brother-in-law, he knows that I enjoy board games, but, like, we don't really – like, we're acquaintances, but we're not mm-hmm. we're not buddies and pals. He lives far away. He got me a, a board game for Christmas last year, and it was a political, like – poke fun at one party oh okay and i'm not gonna i'm not disclosing what party i lean towards i, I like to think i'm a relatively neutral individual but the, mm-hmm. the game was poking fun at the party that i tend to affiliate with when i do <laughs> i was just like oh god this is the-. now and it's one of those things even if i wasn't that the, we'll say the the butt end of the joke, even going the other way around, it's like, well, this is repulsive. It's not even a game. You know, yeah. When I saw by the vote, I was like, uh-oh, this is going to be one of those things that you get at Spencer's. This was a very pleasant surprise. A lot of fun, relatively quick time frame. It could play well with younger folks. And I don't think we had anyone under 30. 
under 35 for that matter at our game day. And right. it was a hoot. It was a great transition going from, from the thing to what, what do we play? Ark Nova, then the thing. We squeezed this yes. right in between them and it was perfect. Yes, definitely. And I, I think you can still get it on Amazon or at their website of what by the votes game.com. Yep. By the vote game.com. You can get a copy there. See what I did there, Scott, is I was up first to talk about a recent play, and I basically made it (laughs) you talking. Running low on supplies during your adventures? Don't want to shell out too much coin to gear up? Level Up's got your back. We've teamed up with Tabletop Tycoon to get listeners of the show 10% off a couple of the biggest titles they carry. First up, Nemo's War. You've heard our thoughts on this one. A grand strategy game jam-packed with meaty decisions. And the theme here, oh, I tell you what, it tells a story every time you play. Plus, Everdell, an early review here at Level Up and a personal favorite for both of us. If you don't have it, you've got to get in on it. Look, not many games get multiple expansions after they release. Only the best. And Everdell, it's one of them. The perk, just for you, is 10% off Nemo's War, Everdell, or the Everdell Collector's Edition just by using promo code LEVELUP2022. You can visit their website at tabletoptycoon.com or click the link on our homepage at levelupgamepodcast.com. Add any of these gems to your cart, that's Nemo's War, Everdell, or the Everdell Collector's Edition, and use promo code LEVELUP2022, all caps, no spaces, for 10% off. Get these games on the table and level up. Well, I got a chance to pick up a game while I was on the road. With my job, I travel around, and wherever I travel around, I try and stop at local hobby shops. Well, they had this one on sale, and I figured, ah, why not? This looks kind of interesting. So I picked up The Search for Planet X. Mm. This is a 2020 game. It's for one to four players. Designed by Matthew O'Malley and Ben Rossett and published by Foxtrot Games and Renegade Game Studios. What you're doing in the search for Planet X is you're an astronomer. (laughs) No, hold on tight here. Trying to find Planet X. Uh Uh Uh-huh. Mind blown. Mind blown. I know. I know. (laughs) Now, we talked about this a couple episodes ago. Mm -hmm. This one does have an app. Now, with the app, though, it gives you information. This is all really a big logic puzzle. Now, I love logic puzzles where you're doing one and, like, Dan loves to stand by the window, but he won't stand next to Anne. Anne likes to stand next to Mark, who likes to stand next to Dan, and all those kind of weird things that go together. But in this, you are rival astronomers, and you're trying to fly Planet X. While you're trying to find it, you have different stellar bodies out there that will give you some information as to where it is. You'll go around, you'll try and find asteroids, and asteroids are always in a pair or they're four together. Mm -hmm. Or comets might be just on prime numbers on the different areas around the board that you're going. There might be gas clouds around there or a dwarf planet. All these little things that will react in different ways to where planet X is. So you go around and you can survey an area. You can survey a small area of the board or a bigger area of the board. Each time that you take one action, it will move what they call the earth board around. There's a little circular area around that covers up one half of the board. So you'll only be able to see one half of the sky at a time. 
So whenever you take an action, say you're going to survey two sectors. Well, that's going to be pretty tricky because you're only going to be doing two sectors. So that's going to cost you four time units. So right there, you're losing four parts of the of the sky that you can see. If you just kind of like throw out something big there, I'm going to look at five sectors. Well, that's going to take only three units. So you're still going to have a lot of the sky to check out. You go to your app, you say survey, what sector you're looking for, and it'll tell you what's in there, if there's anything in there. Mm -hmm. The next player does that. And you're busy trying to pay attention to what they're doing and figure out where things are by what you have with the rules that you have set up with where the asteroids are, the dwarf planets, and so on. There are different areas where you can put out and publish papers. And whenever you do that, you publish papers based on certain stellar bodies. It will take a certain number of turns for them to reach the center of the board. And once they get there, you go to your app and you put peer review. And you flip over your token and see what it is. And was there an asteroid in Sector 7? Nope, there wasn't one. That's where well, your hypothesis you can... is checked. The app actually exactly. does that. Was it actually there? Kind of like how an alchemist, it would say whether or not the formula actually worked. In this case, mm -hmm. your your published paper is is your theory, and then the app does the actual confirmation of whether or not you got it right, right? Very much so. Love it. Now, I don't really think of it as much of a game as it is more of a puzzle. Okay. But even being that... I like these kind of puzzles. So this one really drew me in. Uh, they have a solo version of this you can play. You, you put up another astronomer on there. They move around as you go. It's a nice thing to put on your table and just kind of get lost in figuring out where things are. There is a lot of deduction as to where things are. And normally I'm not good at deduction, but there's something with this one that I really enjoy. Whether it's getting the different information from getting peer reviews, taking a wild shot in the dark and trying to find where Planet X is, depending on what you do, even if you find Planet X first, if you weren't correct on your peer reviews or correct on different things that were going on, you could still lose the game. Ah, so it's so not just a, a race. It's not who no, was the first no. person to find the planet. It's who did the best job in helping to find it. You want to have the most educated guesses of oh, everything that's going on. Okay, I just really, really love this kind of puzzle. Have you been playing this one solo? Yes, I have. have I have not had, had a chance to play with anybody else yet. Okay. You know what? Bring it. Bring it to the Origins. Yes, this was recorded before Origins. And yes, we've <laughs> come to call it The Origins. Bring yes. it to The Origins and we'll play it one of these nights. Um, we'll, we'll set it up and we're going to – dude, we're going to have that Airbnb with like 12 people. So, you know, we're going to have plenty of, of gaming going down. I had this once upon a time. I think mm -hmm. it came from Tiny Fred. I had it right after it came out and I never got it to the table because it shot up in price and I was like – well, I have a you know me, I'm poor. <laughs> well, I like to eat, so I will sell this. Scott, the app sounds like it's more of a an accessory to the game rather than the game. The app sounds like it's non-intrusive. Yeah, it's it very much is. And it's great because whenever you punch in, I want to play a new game, it will come up and give you a code for what that game is. Ooh. So everyone else will type into their phone what that code is oh. so everyone can follow on their own phone while they're playing. So you can all sit around your board game with your heads down on your phone. 
Exactly. <laughs> oh, man, you just made it sound so bad now. Nah, well, bad Patrick, let's bad turn Patrick. That around. Don't make me Scott. get the water gun. Well, Scott, let's turn that around. 2020, this was nominated for the Golden Geek Most Innovative Board Game, the 2020 mm-hmm. Golden Geek Medium Game of the Year, and 2020 being the funky year that it was, it was nominated for the Golden mm-hmm. Geek Best Zoomable Game nominee. I'd like to know what won, if not this, for the Best Zoomable Game. Yeah, yeah, because this is so easy. You just toss out and say, here's the code, type it in. So you're all playing the same game on on. your own phones. Hold on, back that up. So if you have a copy of Search for Planet X at your house, and I have a copy at my house, and Tom has a copy at his house, could we all get on our phones, set it up on the table, punch in the code, and, and we're all theoretically playing the game? That we could. Sold. I, I will. I'll get it. Tiny Fred, you owe me another copy. You got to sell me another copy of Search for Planet X. <laughs> but yes, that was uh, Search for Planet X and anxious to try it out with other people instead of just the bot that they have for it. Scott, you'll recall way back in episode 24, we reviewed Unmatched. We had that Deadpool expansion. Yeah, go back, Adventures. Listen to uh, episode 24 if you want to hear our thoughts on Unmatched. I think at the time I said I I felt it was a little like very basic Magic the Gathering. Fun and approachable. But I think my hang up with the game, though, was that it was a tad too light for me. And I really Mm -hmm. wish they did a little bit more with the board, like play around with the terrain a little bit more. You know, you, you remember this one. Oh, yes, yes. Well, I think Luminary Games must have been listening because they sent me a copy of Ivion, specifically Ivion the Knight and the Lady box. So I'm going to talk about Ivion by comparing it to Unmatched because while I'm sure most people have played Unmatched, Ivion, well, Knight and the Lady anyway, on BGG says that there are currently number of owners 69 dudes. (laughs) As Steve would say. (laughs) Now, instead of a map like we had in Unmatched, Divion uses a 4x4 grid as the board on which your miniature is going to move. Each player has their own unique deck to play with, and the goal of the game is to reduce your opponent's life total to zero. So you can see some of the Magic the Gathering parallels already. Mm -hmm. On your turn, you get to draw a card. You gain three actions, and you gain an initiative token, basically to use for a a once-per-turn ability. Kind of like you can use it to draw an extra card, for example. Action tokens are spent for movement and for playing cards from your hand. Now, I'll stick with comparison mode here with Unmatched because I think, as right. I said, most gamers have played Unmatched. So, first comparison, let's go with the uh, the art and the components. I'll tell you what, Scott. Normally when people reach out to us to send us a game, when we're not asking, they're just like, hey, please, do you want to give this one a look? We get prototype versions of games. We get mm-hmm. some really thin chits. You know what I wasn't expecting? What's that? This thing's got a game trays insert in the box. Well, Two uh-huh. of them. One for each player. Excellent insert. And miniatures as well, though not washed like the ones that we find in Unmatched. Still, quality right. miniatures. There's two standouts in this category that actually have me leaning toward Ivion. First, the board just looks better. I, I prefer right. the look of the board. That's subjective. I get that. But you couple that with the slot cut into the side of – on each side of the board where you can put your hero health tracker. It's like this this oh. big, tall oval, and each side of the board has a half oval cut out, and you just slide in the health tracker. It feels deluxe. Yeah, it sounds like it. Yes. Second, the art's just better. 
for from and uh, you know I can say it's subjective. It's just better, plain and simple. I feel like mm-hmm. it's Magic the Gathering quality artwork. Uh, I I can tell when a piece of art has had a bit more time and detail sunk into it. And Ivion clearly this game that the people that produced this game made sure that they had high quality artwork. The theme's the same, but not as playful. You ain't got Bruce Lee here, but you do have two characters that feel remarkably asymmetric. In the case of the knight and the lady, you have this honorable knight, and then you have this enchantress, right? One of the other boxes is the sun and the stars. It's like a sorcerer versus a wizard. That said, I have only played so far with the knight and the ladies, and they do in fact have two very different play styles. There's three areas where Ivion is a really different game from Unmatched, though. First, Ivion's two-player game. Two-player period. As I recall, we did a three-player a couple of times whenever we did our review back in 24 with – Tom joined us, right? We had three of us going. It plays up to four, doesn't it? Uh, Yes. Yes, it does. Okay. Ivion's two players. Secondly, several cards can be played onto the 4 by 4 grid that makes up the battle map. These can boost your hero. They can negatively impact your opponent. They can be tinkered with. They can be removed. But the point is they exist. It felt like a Magic the Gathering-inspired game that wanted to introduce a spatial element. Where am I in relation to my opponent? All right. That is, it matters where you stand, right? I wanted this mm. to happen more in Unmatched. Ivion delivered it. Oh, okay. All right. The third difference, and this is big, Ivion's a deck construction game, not a deck builder. All right. A game that has you building your deck to your liking before you play. That introduces a whole new level of complexity. That introduces skill because a good portion of players' acumen during a game is derived from their preparation beforehand. Now, this box set, this comes with two pre-made decks, so you can just open it up and play. But you know what it has? It has a little package in it that has the card on the end that says, stop, don't open this yet. So after you become familiar with the gameplay, you can crack that bad boy open almost like a booster pack, a big old booster pack that you can just start Cracking the cards open and modifying your deck. So deck construction, that's a good thing for skill level. That's a good thing for the depth of the game and the challenge of fine-tuning strategy. But it's not always a good thing. Okay. Scott, when Sarah was born, I continued to play Magic, but I only ever played limited formats. Like the kind where you show up, you get random cards to play with. Like you remember hosting pre-releases, drafts, whenever sure, you yeah. the store. Yeah. You know why? It was because I didn't have time anymore. I didn't have the time to build my True. deck, to fine-tune my deck. I could just show up and play. Right, right. Players that had their decks so fine-tuned, read articles, tested constantly. Players would write notes on how to sideboard. I, I couldn't do that anymore. Ivion isn't tournament magic, obviously, but we can water it down to something like you remember GKR, heavy hitters. Mm-hmm. When we talked about GKR, how it was kind of awkward if you didn't play it regularly because new players or people that only played – if you and I – I don't think we played it in this last year. If we broke out GKR right now, we wouldn't know how to build a competent deck. We'd just be, okay, take two right. of these suits. I think that's a hump that some players aren't going to be able to get over with a game like Ivion because it has that deck building in it. Mm-hmm. So plus side, negative side. It's got the deck building, but it's got the deck building – All in all, though, this is a fantastic game. It has all the depth of a heavier game like Magic the Gathering, while if you're playing with the pre-constructed decks, it's still simple enough to break out and introduce to another player. You got the nice minis. You got interesting abilities on the cards. It's not like every card says do three damage, block two damage, gain some life back. No, you've got interesting stuff happening. You've got tokens keeping track of the things that you might need to. It's strategic. 
and it's fun, but I will say it's going to shine brighter if you're playing it with the same person or the same people each time you play it. Now, looking at this and seeing how you said you were talking about unmatched, mm-hmm. why do you think that this is not really competing head-to-head with unmatched? That's a tricky question, Scott. This this came out in 2021, and I think the difference is that Ivion has – while I, I really do like the theming and the art – the art gets you immersed in it. I think that this feels a little more like a been done before in that, okay, you have an enchantress and a knight. You've got a sorcerer. The one is the hound and, and the hare. So it's a, a really quick swift. Think the mountain and the viper from Game of Thrones. You've got the swift right, quick yes. guy and you've got the giant muscle guy. That's one of the boxes that you can buy. Um, they're, they're a little bit more on tropes. Uh, that like, I've been there before. I've done that before, right? Unmatched has Bruce Lee fighting a raptor, and King Arthur is in the fight. You know what I mean? The the Cobble and Fog with, what was it, um, what, Sherlock? Can you be Sherlock in Unmatched? Sherlock, Invisible Man, Jekyll and Hyde, and Bloody Mary. My guess is that because Unmatched... First of all, Unmatched had better marketing. Ivian was a small, smaller uh, company, small Kickstarter. You know, they don't have the marketing right. and whatnot that, that Restoration Games had. So I think that that is obviously a big factor. It was a relatively small Kickstarter when all was said and done. I think that it's definitely the deeper and more strategic game. But quite frankly, I think that can be held against it. Unmatched, I can break it out with just about anybody. Be like, here's how you play. Here's your deck. Nobody's going to ask me, wait, what does this card mean? It's all so easy. And then you couple the fact that you're playing with a raptor versus, I don't know, Bruce Lee and Deadpool. Throw him in there too with King Arthur. Why not? <laughs> and it makes for like kind of, a, oh, Deadpool just regenerated after King Arthur sliced his arm off. Like it tells a funny story. It's not a complex right. system, but it doesn't need to be. And Unmatched came first. Right around the same time Funko had that. What's, what's the Funkoverse game? You can be the Golden Girls. Uh, Funkoverse. And, okay, yeah, well, the Funkoverse, another very similar concept. You know, you've got these characters mm-hmm. on a map. Now, they, they didn't have the same robust deck building, but I think that that's why those games are a little more on the forefront. They're they're more easily approached. That said, if your group likes those games, or if you play one-on-one and you do a whole lot of unmatched, you might really like what Ivian has to offer, because you do get to tinker around with like you can you can like enchant the lands around your opponent and really restrict their movement, or you can put a whole bunch of buffers in in the corners so that you can keep teleporting that like you can do so many things with your character in this that make them feel unique. Unfortunately, they're not Bruce Lee, they're the knight, you know? Yeah, I can just imagine somebody sitting over there going, You triggered my trap card. <laughs> I, I don't even know what that reference is. Yes, I am making fun of a Yu-Gi-Oh player. But anyway, I digress. <laughs> you got me hooked on this. I got to see if Luminary is going to be at Origins. Scott, we got to keep things short because I'm looking forward to Origins. Let's get on with the review. Yes, what, yeah, oh, wait, I, I, oh, I, the I, noise, the sound. Where's that damn trumpeter at? You know what that sound means, folks. It's time for the Top 100 Update. You ready, Scott? Let's hear them. Is Arc Nova number one? Now, not number one yet, but uh, sit tight. Let's start with the Prime Movers. The crew, Mission Deep Sea, is up two spots to number 64. Mombasa. We had this happen last what last episode as we saw an old game climb a couple Mombasa's up two to number 91 falling stars Ooh. twilight imperium third edition down to number 92 and its days are probably numbered in that top 100 
We have a debut that we had like two months ago. Russian Railroads is at number 100. Yep. Things just keep on uh, trading spaces at 100 and 101. They're I, trading paint. I think it's Russian Railroads in the Isle of Cats. Let's go to the yes. new highest peaks. You'd mentioned Ark Nova. It's now up to number 11. Maybe next episode Holy we'll have cow. a change in the top 10 and see if it works its way in. Ark Nova number 11. Okay, that sounds pretty good there. Clank Legacy Acquisitions Incorporated up to number 26, Pandemic Legacy Season 0 up to number 62, and the aforementioned Crew Mission Deep Sea is up to 64. Happy birthdays! We've got a couple Lord of the Rings Journeys in Middle-Earth, two years. Mm -hmm. And I thought this game was a lot older, or at least it feels and looks that way. Grand Austria Hotel, three years. Shut up. May hold on. Wait, we gotta we gotta do some research here. Maybe it is an older yeah, okay. It's a 2015 game. Maybe it was on then bounced off, or maybe it just didn't catch fire till 2019. Yeah. Well, listeners, if you know why it uh, has only been on there three years, please give us a shout out. Let us know. We'll, we'll, we'll <laughs> tell everyone next week how you corrected us. That's neither here nor there. We got a review to do. Yeah, we do. So I don't know. Do you feel like talking about some meeples and or monsters? Yeah, you're going to make me do the walkthrough? Do the walkthrough, Patrick. You're so good at those. Right. Designed by Oli Steinis and published by AEG in 2022, Meeples and Monsters is a bag-building worker placement game for one to four players. In this game, players are tasked with most effectively fighting off the encroaching evil monsters and taking on the final boss monster, earning points in the process. At the end of the game, the player with the most points is declared the new Earl Marshal of the town and wins the game. As we like to do for our walkthroughs, we'll keep it short, but let's set the table. At the start of play, each player will receive an opaque bag from which they'll be drawing meeples. See, the various character classes, or in board game terms, worker types, they're represented by different color meeples. A blue meeple, for example, is a warrior. Each player gets the same seven meeples in their bag to start the game. Now, the main board depicts four regions of the town which you're defending from the evil monsters. Each region has one available worker placement spot. Simply put, you place the required meeples in that spot, you get the benefit. For example, in the University Quadrant, you can place one white meeple to acquire a yellow mage meeple. There are also a couple of blank spots in each quadrant, but we'll get to those shortly. Finally, there's a deck of monster cards. Six of these are going to be drawn at the start of play and put in the quadrant of the board of their respective color. Alright, now let's break down a turn. Turns are simply three phases. Development, main phase, and draw phase. In the development phase, you have the chance to build a new building. See, it's set up. A market of three building tiles is made from a big stack. You may opt to commit basic white meeples to build one of these new buildings. Remember I said each quadrant has two blank spots? Well, that's what they're for. When building one of these buildings, you get to pick which quadrant to place its tile in, and you get a benefit for doing so. That building tile is now an available worker placement spot for the remainder of the game. Also during the development phase, you have the chance to level up your meeples. See, each meeple has some basic stats used for fighting off the monsters, and that's all shown at the bottom of your personal player board. If during development, you send a red meeple for training, for example, sure, it's unavailable for the rest of this round, but you get to take its level 2 card and put it on your player board, showing that your red meeples now have upgraded stats. 
After choosing whether or not to do any of these things in the development step, you move on to the main phase in which you assign your meeples to various spaces on the board to get their benefits, or assign them to monster cards to fight them off. Briefly, each monster has a fighting power. So long as you assign that much fighting power to a monster card, you will defeat it, gaining any listed rewards and scoring the points on it. During the final step, the draw step, if any monsters were defeated, you draw new ones until six of them are on the board. Then you're going to draw four meeples out of your bag for the next turn. And as you might expect, if you don't have enough meeples in your bag, you take all of the exhausted meeples that you've used on previous turns, dump them into your bag, give it a shake, and draw more. Hence the bag building. Players continue taking turns until the monster deck is just about depleted, at which point players will each have two final turns to take on the boss monsters. These are basically high-powered, high-reward monsters that are placed off to the side during setup. After those final two turns, players will calculate the points that they've received from monsters and quest cards that they've acquired, and the high score wins the game. Now, as always, there's more detail than we outline in our brief walkthroughs, but hopefully this will give you an idea of what you can expect when you bust this out and get it on the table. So, how did we feel about it? Did the game cast a level 4 charm spell and captivate our imaginations? Let's find out in the 8-bit breakdown of Meeples and Monsters. Well, thank you, Patrick, for the walkthrough. Adventurers, we like to break down our games here into little bite-sized segments, so we like to call it our 8-bit breakdown. So our first one that we always hit is the art and components. So, Patrick, do you want to take the floor? Sure, sure, I'll take art and components. Let's start here. We're using the Kickstarter version of the game, Scott. Had that silver sticker on the front, and the primary difference mm-hmm. is, as far as we know, is that the meeples are screen printed, and it comes with the Towers expansion. I don't think retail has either of those, let alone the nice, shiny silver sticker on the front. You got some playful art in this game. You got monsters that you're fighting. They're not terrifying or anything. They're cartoony, almost like a good old Dragon Warrior for a regular Nintendo, though not pixelated. Locations on the board, they're they're not realistic. They're kind of like, you know what it reminded me of? The old, man, I love doing old video game references. It reminded me of Earthbound, like an overhead view of, of a big building in a town. And that's what we have going on mm-hmm. here. This being a bag builder, you've got a ton of different color meeples. You've got bags to house them, player boards with your tavern name on the top to hold all of your goodies. I don't think any part of this is going to blow anybody's mind. But to me, nothing fell short as far as art and components go. What do you think? I agree completely. The screen printed meeples were such a great find in that game. They added so much to just the plain wooden meeples. Now, granted, it would still play exactly the same. Mm-hmm. I would have the same fun playing it, but it was just fun seeing those things. Seeing there. how they designed um, it. Having the extra ones that you can upgrade to, the fighter and the barbarian Love and stuff that. like that. That was a a lot of fun. The board, I think you really nailed it on the head where you said it's not outright cartoony. It's not realistic, but it's just you feel familiar Mm -hmm. with. So right away, you aren't going in with the mindset of, oh, I got to learn a new game here. Oh, this is going to be a tough one. You already feel comfortable. Like you're slipping on a pair of slippers and sitting down in front of the fireplace and playing a game. It's, It's good times there. I hope that it was a conscious decision to make it that accessible to players. Well, whilst you're in your slippers in front of the fireplace, are you getting immersed in the theme of the game? Bit number two, theme and immersion. Go ahead, Scott. 
No. <laughs> uh, <laughs> wow. Okay, so our theme no. here is you got a town under attack, and it's up to your adventuring party to fend off the invading monsters. You didn't get any of that. I got that a little <laughs> bit, but it was just more of the fun aspect of what you're going to pull out of that sack. What kind of meatballs are you going to pull out? Are they going to help you at this time? I didn't really feel like, well, if I don't grab the right bunch of adventurers, well, we're going to die because there were so many different options you had. Okay. There were so many things you could do, so many different things you could play. Nothing really got to that point of like munching at my nails and everything, thinking, oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God, until we got to the end game when we're facing the really big monsters. And even then, it's then- not a tense pressure. It's more of a, a pressure of the race. Can I... Exactly. More yeah, the race aspects. Mm-hmm. You just feel like you've played this game before, but it's rearranged in a different fashion. And we'll get um, there. I, that, yeah, I, yeah, you're absolutely yeah, right. <laughs> we'll get there. I'm it, sure. it, it's just one of those things that it's it's just fun. I mean, I didn't feel immersed in it, but that doesn't mean it's a bad thing that I wasn't. Were you immersed in this? No. <laughs> <laughs> there, I'll hit you back. <laughs> I I wouldn't say immerse. You know, we, we like to say that, oh, with a work placement game, it's really hard to get immersed into the theme. But I thought that they did a lot to make the theme come through as much as they could. The invasion oh, sure. thematically, that's carried out by the locations where monster cards get seeded on the sides of the board. As you place workers in various locations, if there's too many monsters there, you're going to end up gumming up your bag with weaker meeples. Weeples? Weekles? <laughs> Weeples, because they were white ones. I remember okay, that. Okay, fair enough. You have an element of building up defenses of the town in that first phase of the turn where you have the opportunity to construct new buildings, which functionally, it's adding a new placement spot to the board. Kind of like when someone constructs a location in Lords of Waterdeep. Side note, I really like when a worker placement game has fluctuating spots like that. It makes it so that the focus in any given game might shift based on what buildings become available. I like that. Mm -hmm. You also have the element of leveling up your adventures. I thought they hammered that. During the first phase of your turn, you can commit, say, a a red meeple to a location that'll level them up. See, at the bottom of your player board, you've got each of your characters shown there with some of their basic stats across the bottom. They're all level one at the start of the game. But when you level up, you take a card, a two-sided card with your little, you know, it's the red meeple, it's a red card, and one side is level two. And then if you do it again, you flip it to level three, you put that on the board. And now that meeple might have better fighting, maybe a triggered ability. This introduces progression and, for that matter, asymmetry into the game and I felt like it was one of the main features, uh, like a big differentiator for Meeples and Monsters, and I really like that. Immersed in the game? No. Thematically, did I think it was cool, playful, fun? Absolutely. Well, enough about the theme. Let's talk complexity. How complex is Meeples and Monsters? Not very complex. Yeah, it's a blanket answer. But (laughs) (laughs) this... I I loved how they did the complexity. You had the different um, uh, levels of monsters that would get harder as it went along. And it kind of held your hand as you went along and upgraded your meeples or fought or clogged up your bag with the white meeples. It really did a nice job of holding your hand as you're going through the game, but not to the point of you're like, okay, I know this. I know this. I know this. Let's just play this game. It was just kind of nudging you in the direction mm-hmm. of it. So the complexity wasn't very difficult. No. It was, I think the, the biggest thing that I keep saying here is familiarity in that it's familiar ground that you're going on, but still it was a fun time. 
Uh, let's cut to the chase with familiarity. Adventurers, if you've played Lords of Waterdeep and or Orleone, you've kind of played this game already to some extent. Do you think that's a fair statement, Scott? Lords of Orleone. Lords of Orleone. I'm going to pen that there. Yes. When I posted about the game, some folks went so far as to call it a family weight game, and I don't know that I'm willing to go that far. There are some next level concepts here. You've got bag building. You've got some probabilities to figure out and worker placement and leveling up your workers, but it's certainly not a complex game. It's like squarely mid-weight. I will say the Kickstarter version of the game comes with that Towers expansion, and the rulebook recommends mm-hmm. that you play your first game without it. So I know our initial run with this, we didn't play it. Honestly, after playing with the Towers, I am never, ever leaving that expansion out. It, it just, No. Okay, so there's basically, what, four locations you can go to at the start of the game, and there's another two in each quadrant. So really, there's 12, but of those eight, some of them you can't even do yet. So realistically, there's four spots to choose from at the start of the game. Two of them will give you corruption, so you probably don't even want those. Just play with the towers. Now you have six. Mm-hmm. Uh, I I think mechanically, it doesn't add any complexity, but it does add a lot of decisions. Most certainly. Now we get to the fourth part, the learning curve and the rule book. You had the rule book, so you taught the game. How was it? It was good. It left little up for interpretation. It outlined things clearly, and I think after a read, I was able to set it up and teach myself without many references back to it. But I will say, there are a bunch of symbols to be found in the various locations. Mm -hmm. Uh, They have that handy icon glossary in the rulebook, and we did have to pass it around a bit. Uh, I don't think that that's uh, anything against the rulebook. I think that it's great that it's there. Kind of wish that they had a player reference card, but that'd be an awful lot to squeeze onto that card. So this was one of those pass the rulebook around for sake of the icons kind of games. But a lot of that stuff becomes pretty intuitive by like halfway through your first play. You're going to know what Mm -hmm. stuff does. An efficient rulebook. How about you tell the adventurers about the learning curve? The learning curve was really pretty simple. And it was fun to learn Mm -hmm. it because once again, you're reaching in the bag and pulling out more meeples. You're reaching in, pulling out more meeples. And that's what made it fun. And as you went along, you would have the meeples in front of you and you could see right in the board what you can do. So the learning curve was very, very simple. You weren't hit with those AP type of decision-making things. There was usually one or two really solid decisions to make. So you're not sitting there, "Um, should I do this or this? Or what if I do this? So it made it very accessible for everyone to play. Fair points. Meat of the game. Bit number five. Well, being a bag builder, I mean, there's obviously going to be decisions to be made every turn and how and if you're going to alter your probabilities, adding or adjusting to your bag, right? Oh, most definitely. That, I think, is definitely the meat of the game there. Absolutely. And, I mean, well, you pull them out, you got to assess where you're going to allocate them on a turn. You've got an extra step, though, in the first phase of the turn with the opportunity to upgrade meeples, construct new locations. I think the meat of the game comes from the fact that it's not stagnant. What I mean by that is, uh, Mm. like, if the red quadrant of the board has three monsters, it's probably not wise to allocate meeples there because you're probably going to take a bunch of generic meeples for having done so. So you just opt for somewhere else. But if a building comes out that's available, it says, uh, we'll say it says, take a red worker, commit it here, and you get to boost the fighting power of all of your white meeples. Then suddenly what was Mm -hmm. a bad idea on the surface, collecting all these white meeples, suddenly has become a viable strategic path. (laughs) I think maybe the meat of the game is 
breaking down what's available and what gets built and becomes available and trying to craft your strategy within those restrictions. I think that's a good way of putting it because I thought originally it was the bag. I mean, you're building the bag. And it is. And, and, that, that's a, that's but it is fair. the decisions of what you put into that bag. That's the meat of the game. They're really thinking about it. Bit number six is where we talk replayability and variability. I'm about to ramble, Scott. I wrote down a lot for this one. You ready? All right. Well, let me do mine first. Then let me read. Replayability and variability. Yes. <laughs> Funny. <laughs> oh, you bring it all the comedy to this show today. <laughs> no, I really enjoyed this game. I would play it anytime someone said, anyone play, want to play this? I would be there. Variability, depending on what you get out of the bag each time you pull it, what cards come up in what order, uh, the towers, what towers you get put mm -hmm. out. There is a lot of variability in this, and this really feels like it's primed for expansions. There doesn't seem like it would be that hard to add an expansion onto this, and it would be really very, very simple. Yeah, yes to both of them there. <laughs> Scott, my thoughts on bit number six here. The arc of gameplay is that players are going to develop their bags. They're going to get better meeples. They're going to level them up. And then they're going to slay monsters until the end of the game. That's just how the game plays out every time. No two mm -hmm. ways about that. Replayability is going to depend on how excited you are to play with the game's variability. We've hardly... Oh. Yeah, here you go. We hardly mention the game's legendary meeples. The shaman, the ranger. Right. Okay. They might all become available in your play. Or maybe only one is available. Maybe it's available early. Maybe not. Which buildings mm -hmm. are you going to create during the game? Where are you going to build them? Which ones were actually built? And once there's eight down, that's it. No more are going to be built. You also get dealt some endgame goals at the start of the game. And I loved how these functions. You get points for... This is one of those games where you get the endgame goals. And if you fulfill the requirements, you get rewarded. But if you don't, you will lose points. So throughout the game, there's mm -hmm. a ton of opportunity to acquire more of these. But they come with that risk where you might lose points for... You know, what if I draw, draw several that I can't actually fulfill? So it's not only another variable, but one that you have to consider might have some consequences. I really liked that. There is a bunch of variability from one play to the next, and yet similar to Orleone, it's going to play out in the same arc each time. Now, I mentioned earlier that the Towers expansion, I think you and I both agree, that's a must. Yes. Okay, so what does it do? It basically provides four stacks of tiles, one in each quadrant of the board. Thematically, the top tile in each stack, while it's revealed, that's a quest that you can undertake. Simple recipes yield a simple reward. Commit a blue, a red, and a white meeple here, voila, you've completed the quest. But it adds four more spaces that are available from the start of the play. And in seeing what those quests are and which ones are available early, that gives the early game some focus. Instead of going through those generic, like we'll call it the generic improvement cycle. Allocate here, get better meeple. <laughs> Allocate here, get better meeple. And then start, you get to just skip that because you already, well, you still have to do it, but you already have some direction of why you're making the decisions that you're doing because you're doing it with a quest or two in your crosshairs. Done. Oh, okay. <laughs> now, this is going to be a tough one. The downsize. I'm gonna, I wanted to let you go first because... I'm a little shy on this one here. I don't know if I had many downsides on All right. this. Well, uh, I don't either. I'm going to start here. The retail version doesn't have the Towers expansion, and that just straight up sucks. I think the game needs a Towers <laughs> expansion. So 
<laughs> if you're going to buy the game, I think going Kickstarter is the way to go. Or if you do go retail, get on their website and get that Towers expansion ASAP. Also, take this as you will, but there really isn't a catch-up mechanism. Uh, and I personally, I don't view that as a downside, but there are folks that do view that as true. They, people, Some people want that in the game, and, and that's fine. That Their reasoning makes sense. This game takes an hour to an hour and a half, and if you have a pretty good idea, say 40 minutes in, that one player is miles ahead of the uh, the others, well, then yeah, you're going to be treading water until you calculate how much they won by. But I don't think it happened in, in any of our games. I just know that, man, no. if somebody did fall behind, they're not. it, it didn't appear that there were ways that they were going to get back into it. Yeah, I, as far as downsides, I really did not have anything that jumped out at me. But I do see the thing with the catch-up mechanism. But once again, it was one of those things that we didn't really get a chance to experience. So I can't really say anything about that feeling that I was just useless just going through the motions for the rest of the game there. It's, it's yeah. difficult to say You can usually really attest to that, that when um, you play a game. <laughs> oh, I, I know. I, I definitely will say that for sure. <laughs> I'm teasing you. Scott, tell me. Bit number eight. We're going to bring it all home. Was it fun? Meeples and Monsters, was it fun? Who's it for? Yes. <laughs> One word answers today. I love it. <laughs> Scott, I, I know I told you no. we have to do a quicker, brief episode, <laughs> but we still have to give the adventure something to chew on. Yeah, it was fun. I didn't know what to expect. Whenever I see something with the name Meeples and Monsters, I'm thinking it's going to be kind of a kidified game. Well, that's kind of far out. Mazes and Monsters is a far out game. Now, I'm not saying this was a real brain scratcher or anything type of strategic thing, but it was more than what I expected. Mm -hmm. So, yes, it was a lot of fun. Who's it for? If you play Orleone, it has a little bit of that. If you play Lords of Waterdeep, mm -hmm. it has a little bit of that. So it's a nice combination of putting different games together in a playful way. Now, one thing earlier you said that I disagree with a little bit whenever you said that people said that this is a family friendly type of game that families can get into I it. I disagreed with that um, one too, but th there were definitely in a comments way, about that. But yeah, but in a way, I think they're right because this would be fun for uh, older kids, like maybe 12, 13, 11, 12, 13, something like that, because the fun of reaching in and not knowing what you're going to have in the bag and what's coming out. Fair point. I think that would really appeal to younger players. Well, <coughs> enough out of me there. Patrick, was it fun, and who's it for? Yes. <laughs> Good answer. Tell you what, Scott, I really like this one. I love whenever I have the opportunity to say something flashy, like, oh, I'll never play Orleone again. But really, this is its own animal. It's probably mm -hmm. not going to be anybody's favorite game. But it is one that I can't imagine anyone straight up disliking it. Uh, you're given a bunch of decisions each turn, and you're... You know, let me clarify that last sentence. We talked about The Great Wall uh, a handful of, of episodes ago, and yes. that game was so good. So good. But I can see where some folks will hate it, right? Uh, Great mm -hmm. Wall, there's going to be people that say, this is my favorite game. There's going to be people that will say, I will never play that again. This I don't think is going to fall into either category. I, I don't think that anybody's no, going to dislike yeah. it, but it there wasn't that X factor that like, wow, I, this is this is the best game ever. I like that you're given a bunch of decisions every turn 
and you're progressively going to become more powerful during your play. Maybe a good way to quantify my thoughts is, is typically after we review a game, it goes on the sell pile so that the show can afford the next game to review. You know, we got to keep the level of lights on, right? I'm not going to sell meeples and monsters. Who's it for? I mentioned, well, you mentioned Lords of Waterdeep as well and, and Orleone. We'll repeat it again here. I've seen threads that that mention it or a buddy that says something along the lines of, those are soulless euros. Those are dry, right? We've all heard that. This kicks the theme up a little bit. You're not pulling a chip mm. out of a bag or, or pushing a cube on the board. You get a meeple. And the Kickstarter version, you get a screen printed meeple. And it looks like a knight. You know what I mean? It looks like a peasant. Yeah. It can level up. You can get cards to make it level up. And it gets stronger. You get to go on quests. Your meeple gets to slay monsters. It's a worker placement bag builder with theme. And adventures, if that sounds appealing to you, I think you're really going to enjoy Meeples and Monsters. Scott, time for the look back, and this time we're talking Red Rising. This is a Stonemeyer game, and you know what I was thinking? We're going to have to talk about what the theme of this one is, and I never got into the books. You? I did not get into the books either. I looked at them, I looked at the Amazon reviews for them, and they're like, uh, but uh, it looks kind of interesting, though. I, w- I might have to check that out. All right, well, I went to BGG so that we can give it a better, an idea from our perspective. Okay, so enter the futuristic universe of Red Rising, based on the book series by Pierce Brown, featuring a dystopian society divided into 14 casts, and we see that in this game. Oh, yes. You represent a house attempting to rise to power as you piece together an assortment of followers, represented by your hand of cards. Will you break the chains of society or embrace the dominance of the Golds. Now, I distinctly remember looking back on this one. I said when we reviewed it, you know what? I, I like this game. Mm-hmm. The next episode, though, I started, I said, you know what, Scott? I got to go back. I remember bantering with you. I said, I don't think I love this because yeah. of the barrier of entry with all the all the info on the cards. I don't know, what do you think about it a year later? Well, actually looking at it, what I did then was, yeah, there was just too much words. There were too many characters. There was so much going on. And I wasn't a big fan. But... A year later, I found myself purchasing a copy of it. Oh? I will have to say I like it. At the time, I was really focused on the idea of building a tableau. And you don't. Then once I looked at it and figured out, oh, wait, I do this. And I'm just trying to get a hand of cards that work well together. That's when it, like, bing. Try and trigger those end games to match yes. up the symbols on the left, and that's when it all came together. Then for me, yeah, a, a solid game. I have I have no complaints about it, with the exception of you know what got to me. Well, I mean, obviously there was the uh, oh the the look. You remember the metal pieces? We yes. had some issues with the shit. Like there was a, a yellow faction. The green kind of looked like the yellow. Like there the was metal components, the, the copper really and the gold and the yellow. They all looked very similar. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. the the stupid hand holders. 
Yes. They had the, the stupid hand holders. Okay, so the game comes with those little things that you can place your cards That's in. the Kickstarter exclusive, though. Mine does not have oh, that. Oh, well, you're not missing anything. <laughs> you got the retail version. So it's a little tray, much like you would hold your Scrabble uh, Scrabble tiles, but it's for your cards. The problem is really flimsy. And these are big, to- they were like tarot-sized cards, mm-hmm. so like a stiff breeze would blow it over. Right. And the game kind of, in my in my mind, the game does benefit from having a splay of your cards to see. Oh, because most definitely. There's a lot of text. So, looking back a year later, let's uh, let's we wanted to keep this episode short, right? So let's yeah. cut to the chase. So you're recommending Red Rising? Do you like it still? I mean, you just bought a copy. I did just buy a copy. Now, granted, all the times I've played it since I got it have been solo. Mm. So I've really enjoyed it taking whenever I'm traveling with work. So that's been working out well. I haven't played with other people yet, so once I get an idea with that, I'll give a better review of it, a better idea. But right now, yeah, it's going to be sticking in my collection. Maybe we've got a solo adventures coming up. Oh, very much. That could be happening. All right. Well, I I ended up selling my copy actually to Jimmy. Jimmy has my Red Rising, and I think <laughs> of he, course. I think he passed it on too. I don't know if Jimmy still has it either. Uh, I didn't hate the game. No, I just you know when I when I think of the vast plethora of options that I have on this shelf. It's really hard to go for one that we don't play regularly enough. Like if mm-hmm. we if we could pick up a card and be like, oh, that's the one that does this. Like you like magic players do. They right. know what yes. they know what yes. the cards are. If we could get to that point, this game would shine. And I just don't have the group for it. So for me it's yeah, it moved it along in spite of the fact that I enjoyed it. And for me it just moved right on in. Why didn't I just sell it to you? I didn't like it at the time. <laughs> Let's move it on. All right, let's go. Hey, adventurers, Scott has some kingly duties to attend to, so it's just going to be you and me for this segment. Truth is, with all the preparing and travel for Origins and the wild times over the last weekend, this episode actually took some pretty nifty scheduling to put together, including the hollow, echoey sound from our look-back segment you just heard. We take a lot of pride in our audio quality, but hey, sometimes you just got to work with what you have. You know what, though? I think this is kind of nice. It's just us. We're going to have a little you and me time. Hang on, let me have a sip of coffee here. Okay, so I wanted to do something special for our time together. Got all dressed up, did my hair to tell you about a game that went live on Kickstarter today. And no, that's not like when I was recording today. That's like today, the day this episode airs today. All right, let's set the table here. Mind Clash Games, makers of Perseverance, Tracarion, Anachrony. These guys are good. Real good. This is a company that when they order a beer, you should probably get the same thing because they know what good is. I had the chance to sit down at a table that included the great mind that is teacher Ryan and dear friend of the show, hungry gamer Will Brown, who for some reason I can't ever say his name without using that entire title. We played a game designed by Robin Hedgedis called Septima. Now, my first thought was to check out Mr. Hedgedis's previous designs, which include a couple of games which are basically not owned by anyone on BGG and that's basically it. That's okay though. Level Up being the resourceful show you've come to love, I've done some research and I've found out that a robin is also a type of bird. That one's free. So those familiar with Mind Clash Games know that when you get one of their games to the table, you're probably going to need a coffee and be well rested because while you're in for a treat of a game, it's usually surrounded by the steadfast guardian that is complexity. 
Couple that with its tag team partner, Father Time, and most find Mind Clash games to be amazing, rewarding experiences that you have to earn. Simply put, they're meaty games designed for meaty-brained gamers. Enter Septima, a game that plays in under two hours? Yes! This is Mind Clash. This is a Mind Clash game that you can play twice during the time it takes to listen to just one episode of The Secret Cabal. In talking with Mind Clash, this is the first time they've developed a game that provides all those thrilling meaty decisions in a sub-two-hour time frame. So let's start with a theme. Now, don't let the name fool you. This has nothing to do with the Spanish word for seventh, or at least not to my knowledge. The theme is witchcraft. Witchcraft. Thank you, Radagast the Brown. From BGG, only in a few corners of the world is the memory of magic still alive, even though a few centuries ago its healing power permeated everything. Witches, its last remaining practitioners, have always been outcasts and could help human society only in strict secrecy. The leader of their people, the Septima, has always been the wisest, most knowledgeable witch. Now, as her time is coming to an end, witches from all over the world gather at Nochtenburg to leave their mark on the hostile town and prove to the Septima that they are her worthy successor. Oh, so Septima is the name of the leader of this secret society of witches. Got it. The theme of the game is that the Septima is retiring. She's been racking up some high salary years on her social security, and it's time to cash it in. So enter you. Well, your coven. You want to get one of your own to become the successor. To do this, you've come to Nochtenburg to practice the... The dark and powerful magic. Thanks again, Radagast, but no, it's actually good magic. See, this town is riddled with disease, and you want to cure as many folks as possible to prove that you're the worthy successor. This is done through collecting various herbs and converting them to potions and brews, getting to the sick and healing them. Seems like a good thing. But no, this town doesn't like witches. They get all worked up thinking you're the Sanderson sisters when you're just trying to crack their back. So you've got some decisions to make because some of the things you can do raise suspicion and cause witch hunters to start tracking you down. Nevertheless, this is the task at hand, but how do we go about doing it? Well, the main board has a bunch of spaces you're going to be moving about and collecting herbs and ingredients from. I'm not going to get into much detail here, but know that it's not like a path to follow or anything. It's more like an open hex board that you can move about wherever you want. The center of the board contains tokens representing the poor folks that need healing. The short and simple of the game is so you're going to collect ingredients, make potions, then go cash them in to heal someone. Simple. But that's just the basic element of the game, which takes place over four rounds, in which each player will take five actions. Now, the meat of this game comes from the action selection and how it's done. Okay, another sip there. You start each round with seven action cards, each providing a unique ability. Gather, brew a potion, heal, etc. You choose one action card to play for the round, plus you have a movement. Once you play a card, it's done for the entire round, so there's a lot of forward planning to be done because timing out when you select your actions is really important. Simple so far, but here's where things get interesting. The action selection is simultaneous and hidden. The reason is because each action has a potential bonus based on whether anyone else selected the same one. Something like a simple recruit action could add one follower to the trial, and yes, yes, I'll get there. 
But if someone else selected the recruit action as well, then everyone who's recruiting gets to get an additional follower. Now, there's also a Septimus space on the bottom left of the board that represents the spell being cast for the round by the High Witch. That's an open information spot that if you match that, it's basically going to act in the same way. There's a little catch, though. One witch doing some simple spells on her own, no big deal. No one notices. But when many witches start doing it, it's going to raise suspicion. Basically, every time your suspicion goes up, the witch hunters have a little more reach in their efforts to catch you and try and set you back. Now this trial, what's going on with a trial? Well, at the start of each round, there is a witch on trial. <laughs> well, that might be a little bit simple. Let's rewind the setup. Your personal player board represents your coven, and on it you have two characters. Now, we're talking big, colorful cardboard tiles to represent these witches, and they come from a big old stack. And the leftovers, they make up the stack of witches who might be on trial during play. At the start of the round, one tile is placed into the trial space on the board. Around the space holding that witch tile, you have a bunch of jury slots where citizen meeples are going to be placed. The game provides a number of neutral or angry citizens in a gathering location right above that, and during the round, players use actions to put their own meeples there. See, that's the recruit action. I told you I'd come back to it. At the end of the round, these meeples are drawn out of a bag. All the ones in that area gathered up, put into a bag, drawn out, and they basically fill up the juror slots around the witch who's on trial. And the balancing act is that as players gain suspicion, the number of angry citizens might be increased. After filling the jury slots, if angry citizens are in the majority, that witch is basically removed from the game. But if they're outnumbered by neutral and player jury members, then players with jury members allocated are going to score some points, and whoever placed the most gets that witch tile, and they get to put it on their player board, giving them a new ability. Now, that's the very basic first impression, boots-on-the-ground report on how Septima plays when it hits the table, but you can get that from just about anywhere. Watch a playthrough, read a game right up, you're going to get all that. What you really want to know is, how does it feel to play this game? Is it intuitive? Uh, adventure, we're cut from the same cloth. Let's talk about the presentation and the feel of the game. First up, the bits. Well, nothing's going to fall short, but the game isn't all flash either. If you're hoping you're going to crack open the box and find that sweet insert filled with miniatures, it's not here. There are a few things that do stand out, though. First up, the witch meeples representing your coven, they're screen printed. Now, that's not something that we haven't seen before, but I always appreciate it. The action cards are tarot-sized, which I thought was a nice touch considering the game's theme. And finally, the art, the art's fantastic. It has this kind of like weathered look with an overall game presentation of somewhat muted colors. It's kind of made to feel like a marriage of natural and mystical, and I think they nailed it. No one's gonna flip their lid. This isn't mechs versus minions or descent legends. The focus isn't on flashy. Instead, Septima is well-refined and crisp. Now, what about the feel of the game? What are the players doing at the table? Tell you what, it took us all of one action to figure out the play before we started some small chit-chat, then some subtle hints as to what we might be doing on our turn. I mean, there's obvious benefit to matching actions with someone else, so naturally, like, we start colluding with one another. It took, like, a round, and the game came to life as the four of us started chatting it up. You do this. I'll match. Wait, what if? Then you have that big reveal. Inevitably, table talk's gonna surface. You're gonna get this atmosphere of the game that I love to find. The players themselves and what they may or may not do starts to become pivotal to the tactics that you're planning for the round. We're just racing for points. 
there's an interdependence and potential for misleading each other that's got me pretty excited to put this in front of some of my more regular groups and see what happens. I mean, it's one thing if you're playing with con buddies in whose company I have to maintain at least a sliver of dignity. But get this in front of that old faithful group of 20 years or so and this game's gonna kill it. Then you factor in that the action selection is simultaneous. That means there's practically no downtime here. You're gonna have to go to the bathroom before getting in the game because once this car's on the road, it ain't pulling over. Now, I'm not a hype man, I'm not getting paid or anything, I just like to share thoughts. So with that in mind, we always want to talk about what we didn't like in a game. And if we loved every bit of it, we still want to point out what others might not. When we finished our play, I was chatting with a close friend of the show who pointed out that he felt movement was quite restrictive. I mean, you only get one move per turn. Yes, yes, you have an action card that lets you move four spaces in a turn, but that's basically it for you if you use that as your action for the round. You have the option of brewing a potion of flight, which allows for basic teleportation to anywhere on the board, but I can't help but wonder if it's worth it. See, the issue is that you gather resources that are printed on the board, and some of them are a bit more scarce than others. Some might be kind of far away. Like, if you're really far from a skull... You could burn through a move card or spend time crafting a flight potion to get over that skull space, spend an action to collect, and then finally do whatever you had in mind. Or perhaps easier, and maybe the better play, and just play the game assuming that you're not going to be getting any skulls. Work with what you can get and optimize that route. I think the issue is that the amount of time and effort it takes to get to that location so that you can get the specific resource that you want, it's probably not worth pursuing at all. Is it possible to get it? Yeah, but would you be better off foregoing it? Maybe. It's going to take a few more plays to make that conclusion. The point is, though, we did find the movement to be a little bit restricting. The game also seems to have only a handful of variables going on. We were each dealt a couple of cards to get a choice of starting resources, but it felt like no matter what you're dealt, you're going to end up with a handful that's similar enough to everyone else's, and it should be noted that no matter how you choose to go about doing it, the arc of play is always going to be something along the lines of collect the resources, trade them for healing abilities, go heal the sickies, and then repeat. Yes, there are a lot of tactical decisions as to how I might go about doing these things, but like if you're looking to summon the Witch Lord as an alternate victory condition... It's not in the box. All right, downsides out of the way. Is this a Kickstarter to back? Do you recommend it? First off, the time of recording, I don't know the price. Obviously, back it if it's five bucks and don't if it's 5,000. Values, uh, values subjective. Assuming that this has a standard Kickstarter price for a game of its size, I think it's a well-defined cut above. It's on a higher tier than its competitors. This is a Mind Clash game in a shorter time frame. The mechanisms within are familiar, and while you're not going to find the trial mechanism in many of your other games, most of what's on the table you're going to have seen before. There's a familiarity with it. It's just really well refined. As far as should you back it, you make your own choices. You have the ultimate power over your wallet. Well, you and the gas station, I suppose, but for me, I am backing this one without question, and for a few good reasons. One, this game is about witches. I... <laughs> Who gives a crap, right? There's plenty of those, right? But so often they're either playful and cutesy, or they're made by someone who's actively trying to convert me to their real-life coven. <laughs> this takes the theme and it evokes it through the card play, emulating the casting of spells, combined with the trial at the end of each round, all the while the witch hunters are keeping a watch fly. Thematically, I was sold. Second, I like games that are intuitive. I'm perfectly willing to check rule books, and meaty games usually require it, but not so much here. 
I thought the game ran smooth as silk. I think that when I teach and play this, I don't have to start flipping through the book like I don't know what the hell I'm doing. Third, I like table talk. Don't get me wrong. I enjoy most types of games. A game doesn't lose a tick in my pretend metrics for being a quiet, heads-down Euro, but I do like table talk, especially when the game it's attached to isn't some junk that's supposed to be made better by boisterous barking and finger-pointing. Our table of four, who, while I know them, we're not old college buddies. I mean, we haven't been co-workers for years or anything like that. We were still able to engage with each other. Think about that. That's really hard for a board game to do, but it happened here. Fourth, there's minimal downtime. Nothing kills a game like being able to fry a full pan of bacon between your turns, which actually might might, might be a remedy for you. I'm going to write that one down. Finally, the game has familiar mechanisms put together elegantly, coupled with the creeping tension with that rising suspicion, and topped off with the trial phase, a a mechanism which, as I mentioned, I don't see as often as I'd like. That's got me wanting to play more. Adventurers, check this thing out on Kickstarter. It's gone live today, the day that this episode airs. Hopefully, they have the rulebook available to page through. Have a glance at some of the cards. If you like what you see, coupled with my thoughts, I think this could be a winner. I, um... I suppose I don't have a sign-off for doing a monologue on my own like this. Uh, Let's see. uh. Witchcraft. Ah, that'll do. Thanks again, Radagast. Septima from Mind Clash Games. Check it out. I'm a backer, so you need to back it as well, so I feel justified in my purchasing decisions. Let's get back with the king. Let's wrap this adventure up. As it turns out, Scott, episode 61 is going to be a relatively short one. We're not doing uh, an adventure on the horizon as we initially planned. We got Origins right on the horizon. We just recorded a side quest. It's been a long day, so let's get it over with and talk about how we leveled up. (laughs) My schedule's all lined up for Origins. And again, you're hearing this after Origins and all the shenanigans that come with it. But uh, that I have the schedule in place, my level up is that it is in place. And I'm hoping that I can look back on this level up in a week and a half and confirm that indeed everything went according to plan. No shenanigans, <laughs> didn't drink too much, had a great time. We'll see. Scott, how did you level up? Well, my level up was, okay, once again, I went someplace, but uh, I got a chance to go whitewater rafting with my Ooh. wife, and we had perfect weather, perfect water temperature, great group, everything was great, and whenever I get a chance to go places with her and we get to experience things together, it is just that much more special, so... It was a great weekend, and I got whitewater rafting under my belt, so awesome times. That's how I leveled up. Well, Adventures, thank you so much for joining us for today for Episode 61. We're going to be back in a couple weeks. Our review, we don't have this one ironed out yet, Scott. I was thinking Veiled Fate or The Hunger or The Thing. Do you want to pick? It's a mystery. No one knows what will happen. (laughs) Okay, well, it's going to be one of those three. We hope that you join us again in a couple weeks to hear all about it. We hope that you join that BGG Guild 3722. Get your Wilford badge. Keep your ears open. We're hoping to have a tournament for the end of July, July 31st. That's a Sunday. I think it's a Sunday. Yes, it is. Okay. 
Well, nevertheless, adventurers, thank you so much for joining us for episode 61. We'll see you in a couple weeks when we talk about one of those games. In the meanwhile, keep your ears open. We've got an Origins recap side quest coming up either next week or three from now. Scott, you get the final word of the day. Woo! Origins! Thank you so much for joining this adventure of the Level Up Board Game Podcast. We encourage all adventurers to check out our website at levelupgamepodcast.com. There you can submit your thoughts and audio to be used in a future episode. Please consider rating us on iTunes. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and join the Board Game Geek Guild, Guild 3722. Music for the podcast provided by Adam Haynes. Learn more at adamhainesmusic.com. And remember, you can spend another night on the sofa, or you can get some friends together, get some adventures on the table, and level up.